All right, so let me tell you what's going on, what we're going to be doing the next couple weeks, and then what's going, where we're headed. So here's what we're doing. Today and next Sunday, we're going to do a brief, a brief two-part series called Don't Forget Your Sword. All right, stemming from a couple-month series on love, talking to different people. Those of you in the church in particular felt like this particular topic would be good for just a brief, just a brief Two messages called Don't Forget Your Sword. Then on the third Sunday, December 20th, we'll do what we would be a traditional Christmas kind of service because it will be the last Sunday before Christmas. Christmas will be that Friday on the 25th. So I will do a message, a more Christmas-oriented theme. And then on the 27th, we have something else uh, planned that we'll let you know about as we get closer to that date. And then beginning January 3rd, we will make our return back to the Book of Romans. We would do a little bit of review just to catch back up. We, t- in terms of Romans, that we, we, it's been about 11, 12 years since we've been in Romans. But in terms of Romans, we are in chapter 9, but we need to do some review to get us back up to speed. So we'll start that off in January, but we are headed back to Romans. But today, I wanted to talk about your sword and don't forget your sword. Now, why sword? Well, sword is a, it's a biblical theme in the Bible. It's a motif in the scriptures. In fact, in a couple different places, we see the significance of a sword connected to Jesus and, and the word and even the spirit on some level. So if you look at Revelation 1, this is the scene where John, the apostle John, is in, he has a vision and he sees Jesus. This is the Jesus that on earth he would have been walking with for years. And he sees Jesus in a different form. And he describes him in verse 116 of Revelation as this. He says this. And he had seven stars in his right hand and a double-edged sword came out of his mouth, came from his mouth. And his face was shining like the sun at full length. So this is an important distinction that the description of Jesus in this eternal scene, one of, the, one of the ways that he wanted to be defined and seen and to be known as in this glor- glorified scene of his, of his personality, of his character, was to have a sword representative coming from his mouth, a sharp, double-edged sword. Now, we know that Jesus is the word of God, so the sword is symbolic of the word of God being a sword, which is proven in passages like this. In Ephesians chapter 6, in verse 16 and 17, Paul is describing for the believer how to fight against temptation in the world. And he has a number of different ways that he describes the the mechanics like salvation and faith. And he describes all of these in sort of, clothing forms of a Roman centurion soldier. So helmet and shield and belt. And he describes it as if he's describing a Roman soldier because the people who Paul was writing to, they would have identified, okay, he's talking about prepare for war, prepare for battle. And the battle is not someone else. It's the enemy. It's the devil. And he says this in Ephesians 6, 16 to 17. He says this, in every situation, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. If I were teaching that, that's an important statement. But then he says this in verse 17. Take the helmet of salvation 
and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. So here you have again this motif, this theme, this analogy of the Bible, the very thing that the word of God, the thing that we carry either on our apps or in our hands, the one that we may have 10 of those that don't even get opened in, in, in our houses. These, those are all swords according to God that he's letting us know about. So Jesus has a sword coming out of his mouth which represents the word of God. Jesus in John 1 is called, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. So here that sword is here. Paul identifies it as the sword of the spirit, indicating both Jesus and the spirit are God. And that sword of the spirit is the word of God. Hebrews 4, 12 and 13 describe it slightly differently, but are, but are making a, a significant point. He says this, for the word of God is living and effective and sharper than any double-edged sword. Penetrating as far as the separation of soul and spirit, joints and marrow, it is able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. So here he's getting after the effects of the sword, that it's sharper than a double-edged sword. That's an interesting statement, being that in Revelation chapter 1, as John sees Jesus, what Jesus has come out of his mouth is a double-edged sword. But in Hebrews 4, it's saying it's sharper than any double-edged sword. Well, the double-edged sword that comes out of Jesus' mouth is the sharpest. And he says that it has the ability to penetrate and judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Why a sword? God could have used many analogies, and he does. He's a very illustrious God. He gives us, he's creative, he's imaginative. He gives us imagery that we can relate to, even though we don't typically use swords today in our day and age. There are people and cultures that still do. But why a sword? Well, swords are very dangerous weapons, especially if you don't know how to use it. One of the greatest precautions in handling a sword is the blade. Be careful not to touch the blade. You ever watch those movies? As a matter of fact, on, over Thanksgiving, my family, Thanksgiving Day, my family, we watched Pirates of the Caribbean, the first one. And my kids had never seen it. They don't like, my, my, my wife and my kids, they don't be into all the skeletons and all that stuff. Them walking around looking like this. I'm good with it. I, I, I'm fine with all that. Orcs from Lord of the Rings, they make me laugh. But my family, they don't like that stuff. But we decided, let's watch, let's watch the first one, Pirates of the Caribbean. So we watch it, and there's a scene with William Turner, who's the son of Bootstrap Bill, right? William Turner is a sword maker. And Jack Sparrow shows up. He's a main character, Captain Jack Sparrow. He shows up, and they get into, he's escaping from the Navy, and he gets into this sword fight, and he, and he says this. William Turner is going back and forth with him, and he's a pirate. Jack Sparrow's a pirate, so pirates are known for their swordsmanship. And so they're going back and forth with the sword, and he says this. I practice three hours a day, every day with this sword, basically telling them, you're not going to out-swords me 
because I practiced and they had this nice duel. Now, in reality, to film that scene, they have to do a lot of choreography. You don't just pick up a sword and be like, hey, let's play around. You know what I'm saying? You don't do that because that sword is sharp. And if you accidentally stab, stick somebody, then that, that's the last thing they're going to see. So they got to choreograph. They take months. That little five-minute fight scene that we watch, it takes months to choreograph that. Sing, 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 sing all that. They practice because they understand, even in Hollywood, that a usage of the sword is deadly. We need to make sure that we know how to use this thing. So we're going to get professionals who understand how to use swords, train you all, and make the choreography right so the scene looks really good to us, but so they also don't injure each other because a sword is a dangerous weapon. It is intentional that God is using the word of God as a sword because it's a dangerous weapon weapon. And like a real sword, like a sword that we're thinking of, you have to practice to know how to use it. So this morning, we're going to look at a particular passage in Psalm 119. We're going to look at verses one through eight and then sort of pick it apart. And this is going to remind us to don't forget your sword. Psalm 119, 119, beginning of verse 1. And I quote from God, from his word. How happy are those whose way is blameless, who walk according to the Lord's instruction. Happy are those who keep his decrees and seek him with all their heart. They do nothing wrong. They walk in his ways. You have commanded that your precepts be diligently kept. If only my ways were committed to keeping your statutes, then I would not be ashamed when I talk about all your commands, when I think about all your commands. I will praise you with an upright heart when I learn your righteous judgments. I will keep your statutes. Never abandon me. These eight verses, this passage presents a tug of war in the life of every genuine believer. And I emphasize the word genuine. Every genuine Christian will experience, experiences, have experienced the tug of war in this passage. These verses are wonderful in their acknowledgement of the importance of the word of God. They understand the significance of God's word. And they appeal to the life of a believer who needs the word of God. But the reality is sometimes is not committed to the word of God. This is the tug of war within every genuine Believer, we know we have the word. We know we have a sword. We know we need to be like William Turner and practice. But in reality, we're not as good at it as we should. We don't practice as much as we should. 
And even the psalmist understands that the, the word is significant to who he is as a person and to his growth and holiness, but he still can lack the commitment to read it, to interact with it. And it can have serious consequences on our growth. The reason why me and Mike want to do this series today is because I think too often many, many of us, we, we read the Bible sometimes to either fix a situation or to defend a position. So we're trying to prove something or fix something. So it might be, I'm struggling with this, what passage do I read? Or, or I'm going to defend against this position. Let me go to the Bible and show why this doesn't work or why this does work. And, and that can a lot of the ways we, we think about it. But we tend to think of holiness and, and growing in the Lord as something that happens apart from the Bible. So we, we read the Bible to kind of fix things, to remind ourselves. But when it comes to holiness and growing, the Bible is sort of like something that's over here. We got to do all of that. And people don't actually think this thought, probably, but functionally, it's almost as if the more mature I am in the Lord, the less I need the word. Or the more mature I am in the world, the more mature I am in the Lord, the less I should be tempted by sin. Most things aren't true if we just look at the life of Jesus, because Jesus was tempted to sin and he constantly had to go away and be with the father. In fact, if Jesus, which the Bible is true, is the actual word of God himself, then it's amazing that he had to memorize his own word in the human form. In Luke chapter 3, when his parents were looking for him, at 12 years old, they found him in the temple. They were upset. Well, where have you been? Why did you, why did you do, do this to us? And he was going back and forth with the religious leaders, stumping them, asking them questions about the word of God. They were wondering, who is this kid? See, Jesus had to, he is the word, but then he had to understand the word again as a human being. So that way he could teach it and explain what it really means now. But a lot of us, I think at times, we think that our growth will be somewhat separate from the Bible. Like it's it's supplemental and it does that. But when you read this passage, you, you realize that what he's saying is there is no growth apart from the word. There is none. Now, each of these, there's eight verses. Each verse in segments of two has a little bit of a different theme. And as I was looking at this, you know, sometimes it's best to come up with a main point. What's the main point of the verse so that you just walk away with at least one main point? Sometimes we do that. Sometimes we just walk through and make observations of the passage. And as I was looking for the main point, I realized that this is less about a main point and more about it seems like a sentence is being formed by these eight verses. It's like a sentence is being formed using the two, the, 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 each of the verses by two. So the first two verses focus on happiness. The second two verses focus on obedience. The third two verses focus on discouragement. And the last two verses focus on pursuing. And so I don't think this is about a main point, but I think there's a sentence here that I want to introduce to you that I think sums up what this is saying and that we directly relate to the experience of the psalmist. Here's the sentence. 
and I want to prove it as we go through. Here's a sentence. I'm happy when there's obedience, but I get discouraged that my lack of pursuit may make you abandon me. This is what I think this psalmist is saying to God. I'm happy when there's obedience, but I get discouraged that my lack of pursuit may make you abandon me. And I think if we strip away all of the facade of who we are as Christians and we just get down to the when we're really what we really are concerned about. And I really I think we can identify with this. That there is a connection between how we think about God, how God we think God thinks about us. And how much we think he's disappointed when we don't engage or when we're not able to pursue for whatever reason. I'm happy when there's obedience, but I get discouraged that my lack of pursuit may make you abandon me. Let's examine the text to see if I know what I'm talking about, because often I don't, as you all know. Beginning in verses one and two, he says this. How happy are those whose way is blameless, who walk according to the Lord's instruction. Happy are those who keep his decrees and seek him with all their heart. So here we have the first description here refers to the person being happy. And it's happy for two reasons. There's two reasons they overlap. The first is the word blameless. Happy are those whose way is blameless. Now, blameless is not the same thing as sinless. Only Jesus was sinless. If it were possible to be sinless, then Jesus wouldn't have had to come. The whole reason why Jesus had to come is because it is impossible for any human being apart from Jesus to be sinless. But this is talking about being blameless. That's something different. And this is a biblical motif throughout the whole Bible. Old and New Testament use this idea of being blameless. In context of this passage, it essentially means free of guilt or not subject to blame. So happy are those whose way is blameless, free of guilt. In the New Testament, it's very similar, but you'll see this in a couple passages, and we'll see some of those in a little bit. But it says it's, it just basically means not subject to or deserving of or worthy of the charge of wrongdoing. So essentially, blameless is just describing someone who has integrity. This person has integrity, and integrity not as a personal characteristic, but integrity because they are trying to obey the word of God. They're trying to apply the word of God, and they are applying the word of God. It's not just integrity like I grew up in a home and my mom and dad taught me to be honest, and that's just my personality. It's blameless in conjunction with who God is, what God has said, and their desire to imitate God and obey God because they want to please God. This person is blameless because when they stand before God, as it relates to judgment from him, there will be no blame. It doesn't mean they're sinless. It means that their pursuit of God has made them blameless. They're free of guilt. So even though they fall, as we all do, free of guilt. And that makes a person happy. This is what he's describing. Happy are those whose way is blameless, who are free of guilt. 
I don't know how many of you have been faced charges of something. I remember I was falsely accused of a, of, of a felony. I had to go to court for this thing. I was working for a company that was kind of like FedEx. It was called Airborne Express. And we had to scan packages. And someone, uh, I had scanned. So what would happen is you have this conveyor belt and you have your van and you, you, look, at the, you look at the zip codes and make sure that, that that fits your route, your zip code area. And you scan the package. Well, this whole bag came down and it was going to a 7-Eleven. And I had done 7-Eleven deliveries all the time. So I looked to make sure that it, the outside label had my route area. And I scanned it, put it in my bag, did all that stuff. When we were leaving, they were doing random scannings of people's vans because people were stealing laptops. We knew when a laptop came in, this is a computer. And you could just take the laptop, put it off, and put it in your truck and not scan it. And they would only know that it was scanned in the general building, but no driver scanned it. So they happened to check my van that day. And the guy that was checking the van, me and him didn't really like each other too much. I was a brand new Christian, and he didn't like that. And I, was, I didn't care that he didn't like it because I wasn't afraid of him which is surprising to some of you. So he pulled, they tell me, hey, pull your van over. And I'm sitting here like, man, hey, I got to go. They're like, pull your van over. My route was 504. 504, pull your van over. So I was like, hey, listen, all right, if y'all do this, man, if I don't make, if I don't get these, these priority ones by noon, don't get mad at me because I got to go. My route was in Silver Spring and the office was in Rockville. And so he walks up and he says, what's this? And he holds a bag up. And I said, it's a bag going to 7-Eleven. And then he opens the bag up, and they're going to different 7-Elevens. So his implication was, I was stealing what was in the bag. And I said, bro, I said, go get the manager. Everybody here knows I don't steal, man. I said, go get this dude. You playing games with me right now. I don't have time with this. But no, they carried it further, tried to accuse me of stealing some things, and I was charged with felony theft. And I remembered thinking one day before this court case, that God and his sovereignty has not allowed me to pay the penalty for things that I did do, what if he decides to allow me to go to prison for something I didn't do? And I remember wrestling, thinking, and coming to this point, saying, God, you are sovereign, whether I get convicted of this or not. I know before you I didn't steal this. You know, but if it's your will that I go to prison for this or get or go, then you, I'm just going to have to trust you. Even though I said I ain't going to like it, but there were things that I didn't get punished for that I was forgiven for by God that I clearly should have. So here I am trying to figure out. And when I, when I got to the courthouse that day, I thought I had my evidence. I was ready, but I was, I was nervous because anything could happen. I got there and my lawyer said, hey, you're good. They dropped the charges. I said, what did you say? They said they dropped the charges. And I looked at, the, I looked at the, the manager who was there with them. And I looked at him and said, bye. It wasn't necessarily what I should have done, but I was mad. <laughs> that wasn't my finest Christian moment. But I wanted him to know, look me in my eyes. I'm innocent. And when I walked up in that courtroom, I felt good. I was free of guilt. The freedom of guilt makes a man happy. I celebrated. And I looked up to the Lord and I said, Lord, the next time I go to prison, get, go to court for any charges, it will be because they're locking up people for believing in you. That was February 5th, 2001, and I haven't gone back yet. 
free of guilt makes us happy because we're blameless. I felt good that day. I still feel good from that day. I'm fired up right now. I might try to jump over this tub, make all y'all laugh. The person is blameless because they will not experience judgment for God for sin. The next thing he says about being happy, he says, listen, they walk according to the Lord's instruction. That's just an analogy for they obey the scriptures. They obey what they know of the scriptures. They, didn't, they weren't walking around with Bibles and stuff like we have. They didn't have that, but they had teachings from the temple. They had, they had different things. They had the, what the prophet would say. They had to memorize certain things, and they, they kept the Lord's instruction. In fact, later on in this, in this, this is the longest psalm in the whole, in the whole Bible. And this, later on, it talks about, I meditate day and night with my law in your heart. So there was this understanding that I know the Bible. But the emphasis here is the person who is walking with the Lord is happy. This is describing someone's actual experience. This isn't just a theological statement from God's perspective, like they should be happy. because No, he's describing the experience of people, of a person. The psalmist is looking at people and saying, look, these people are happy. This isn't a theological perspective from God. This is an actual experience of people who are aware of and are submitted to the word of God, and it makes them happy. And even in our own experience, let's be honest, even though we're not, we know that God doesn't love us more if we read every day or love us less, but we feel like that a little bit, right? We feel like that. You go, like, like I, one of the things I appreciate about what Natalie said, and then when she said, I was like, wow, Lord, this is so perfect to what we're talking about. When she talked about when I wasn't reading and distant, I felt distant, I just felt it. I'm paraphrasing how she said it, but she said, my soul was different. I felt different when I was disconnected from God and his word. I wasn't in it. She, lit, she felt that physical distance. Because we all know that we're most confident in God when we are most diligent to pursue God. We're the most confident in God when we are diligent to pursue God. When we don't, we don't have that confidence. They are happy because they're blameless. They walk according to the Lord. And they keep his decrees and they seek him with all their heart. These are happy seekers. Decrees are like laws, testimonies. And when it's talking about being a seeker, it's talking about being someone whose desire. Now we're talking about the motive and desire. This isn't just the action of seeking. But this person's desire is to read the word, to know the word, and that's how they, they understand it. They're, listen, they understand that the God isn't physically in front of them. They can't see God any more than we can right now. But they understand that when I'm reading his word, when I'm applying his word, when I'm seeking him through his word, that I'm connected to him. And it makes me happy. I feel like I feel good. But there's something we have to look at that I thought was really interesting in this passage. Look at verse one again, the first half of the sentence. It says, how happy are those whose way is blameless? The whose way is blameless is an interesting statement. 
You see, the blamelessness in verse 1 is not necessarily the person. It's the person that they're imitating is blameless. See, it said, whose way is blameless? It says, happy are those whose way is blameless, who walk according to the Lord's instruction. It's not just that they're blameless. It's the person who whose way they're walking in is what makes them blameless. So even in this passage, way before Jesus comes, it understands that you have to walk in the way of God to be blameless. This person isn't blameless. The person whose way they're walking in, which is the instruction of the Lord. That's what makes them blameless, at least in this passage. This is describing someone who attempts to love God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. And what's interesting, in the New Testament, that language is only used a couple times, all by an interaction. Jesus has an interaction with one of the scribes, and they ask him, what is the most important uh, law, what's the most important command? And Jesus in Mark 12, 28, this is, this is what happens. He says this, one of the scribes approached when he heard them debating and saw that Jesus answered them well. He asked them, which command is the most important of all? Jesus answered, the most important is listen, Israel. The Lord, your, our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. So Jesus brings this up, and he uses the same narrative in two other Gospels to highlight this kind of language, this sense. Other, apart from that, you don't really hear this kind of language in the New Testament. And I think one of the reasons why is because only Jesus only Jesus could make someone blameless, and only Jesus would fulfill loving the Lord God with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength, never failing. Jesus said, I always do what pleases the Father, always. So it's important to realize that in Psalm 119, the emphasis is not on the person being blameless, but whose way they walk in, which looks forward to Jesus. They're walking in the Lord's instruction because none of us can do this, only Jesus. So in the context of this passage, it's setting the stage for being blameless and walking in someone else's way, which is Jesus. He makes us blameless. Here's proof of that. First Corinthians 1.8 says this. He will also strengthen you to the end so that you will be blameless. In the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Here's what he says in Colossians 1.22. But now he has reconciled you by his physical body through his death to present you faultless and blameless before him. 1 Thessalonians 3.13 says this. May he make your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. Amen. So you see, Psalm 119 is, is, is presenting the future reality in its present. When they wrote it, people were trying to be blameless, but 
God, knowing that Jesus is coming and is actually going to fulfill the blamelessness, sets the stage for this to occur. But it's only when you whose way you walk in is what makes you blameless. Not you yourself, not our personalities, not our I'm an introvert, I'm an extrovert, not those things. Those don't make us blameless. Our demeanor. There are a lot of people I know that are calm. They're laid back. They never they never argue and never lose their cool from what we call. It. And it seems like, man, these are, you ever met people that just like they'd be a good Christian because they just have a certain demeanor about them. But that demeanor doesn't make them of the Lord. That just means that's a personality that God gave them. They can't be blameless walking in that way. We have to walk in his way, the instruction of the Lord, because he makes us blameless. So to be happy, to be happy, it's to recognize that from his word, we see that his death has made us blameless before God. And that when we seek him, we're motivated to do good because of him. But the emphasis here is on being happy. So it begs the question, it begs the question, does it still make you happy that his death has made you blameless? Are you happy in him to want to spend time with him and to be like him? Christians are supposed to be happy. Not because we love our families or life is good or our sports team won. All those things are true. And they happen, unless you're a Redskins fan, Ali. Jeez. But the emphasis here is being happy because we're blameless. And we're blameless because of Jesus. And you know how we know? Because of his word. Are you still happy that you are blameless before God? Or are you so familiar with it that your conversion is you are ambivalent. Are you still happy that you are blameless in the Lord, that you're willing to walk away from relationships that don't glorify him, circumstances that don't glorify him, opportunities that will tempt you to walk away from him? Are you still happy in the Lord or do you need other things to fulfill that happiness because I'm not happy enough in the Lord so I don't even spend enough time with him? Are you happy enough to see that when we spend time with him in his word and we try to walk in his ways that it affects my disposition? Or does your relationship, are you happy when you get things from him or that you think are from him. Are you happy still? The second two verses, the second two highlight obedience. Listen to what it says in verse three and four. So we got happy, we've got obedience. Three and four. They do nothing wrong, they walk in his ways. You have commanded that your precepts be diligently kept. This is a restatement of what has already been said, but it's emphasizing that applying the Bible, the word, to one's life is essential for one to have eternal life. Now, obviously, there are situations we got thief on the cross, 
We got situations where things happen, conversion happens right before moments of death. But in its in, in typical fashion, applying the Bible to one's life is essential for one to have eternal life. Now, I'm not talking about work salvation, works base. But Jesus said, if you love me, obey my commandments. Not if you love me, say you love me. Because the people that said they love him, he said, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. It's not enough to be an orator of truth. That's actually the problem. So he says they do nothing wrong. Are these people sinless? No, of course not. But they strive to not do, not, to, to not do wrong. They aren't okay with doing wrong. Oh, there have been times in my life where I've been okay with it. I'm doing wrong for the right reasons. I don't know about that. They fight against doing wrong by walking in his ways. It says they do nothing wrong, they walk in his ways. Now this statement, they walk in his ways, I'm really starting to like this phrase. I'm starting to like this phrase. Because this statement was made before Jesus came, right? But this phraseology, walk in his ways, it's an analogy of saying they try to obey him. But if you think about it, it's more than an analogy. The metaphor is cool, but it actually describes an eschatological reality. An end times reality is that Jesus did actually come. Jesus did walk the earth. And most of the places that Jesus traveled were walking. When Jesus came, he literally walked from place to place. Sure, he got on a boat at times and stuff like that, but he literally walked from place to place. So this phrase, walk in his ways, is not just an analogy of obedience. It's a literal, it's a literal formulation of what Jesus did. So when we walk in Jesus' ways, as Jesus literally walked and taught people how to live, we are walking in his ways in the metaphoric sense, but we're also walking telling people how to live, trying to live that way. This is a literal reality. The omnipresent God who is everywhere decided to come to earth and walk from place to place, explaining what it means to obey God. And so this phraseology of walking in his ways is not just an analogy when we realize Jesus literally did walk and explain his ways. And we're doing the same or should be. I love this analogy, this, this, this walking and this, this metaphor. I love it. It's more a metaphor than an analogy. But I love it. Because I'm like, wow, you actually did walk, though. Literally walk. This is where the WWJD comes from. What would Jesus do? That's where that came from. Helpful, but didn't last. According to the passage, growth is what happens when his people interact with his word. And this is God's declaration has always been this. You know me when you know my word. John 17, 17, here's what Jesus prayed. He said, sanctify them by the truth. Then what did he say? Your word is truth. He didn't say, this is what he said. Listen, that's important. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is true. So 
Sanctify them. Set them apart. Change them by your word. Not by their circumstances. Not by their feelings. Not by their political affiliation. Not by where they stand on a race issue. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. So Jesus is praying, Father, change them. Set them apart by your word. We need the word to help us in the world. So if we remove ourselves from the word, and we've all done this, we've all can relate to when Natalie said, I just feel like I just, you back away from it, then you don't feel like reading. And you know why you don't feel like reading? Why you're not a reader? It's because the word can get to the intentions of your heart. Who wants to read a book that tells you what you really think it is? But who wants to read a book where Jesus says in Matthew 15, from the heart come idolatry, evil desire, sexual immorality? Who wants to read that? I want to say, you made me angry. It's your fault. But the Bible says, nah, it was here. It came out of you. It's your fault. Who wants to go back and ask someone for forgiveness when they really hurt it, when they really hurt them? They started the fight and you got angry and sinned back and now you're hurt. And the Bible tells you you need to go back and ask for forgiveness, whether they ask for forgiveness or not. Who wants to do that? Who wants to be exposed by the word of God? So it's easy to say, I'm not picking up my sword for a while. I'm not picking up my sword for a while. We need, we need, we need to, because this is the way we grow. Sure, we have D groups and the number of means of grace, but we're sanctified, we're set apart, we're changed, we're happy when we realize we're blameless in him and we get that from his word. We can't just be like, hey, I'm struggling today. Let me read the Bible and this will hold me down for a couple of days or a couple of weeks. The Bible is not medicine. It's not aspirin that we take when we feel bad. It's it's oxygen. It's what gives us life. We need that. The next two. So we got happy. We got blameless. The next two. Verse five and six. This is what he says. If only my ways were committed to keeping your statutes, then I would not be ashamed when I think about all your commands. And here the psalmist takes a different turn. In verses one through four, he highlights how happy people are that are following the Lord. He turns from observing them and their happiness to himself. It's almost like he's watching people. You know, my, my wife, we were like, is a people watcher. Sometimes we'd go out. We used to go out. And we would go out and we would just sit somewhere and we would just like to watch people. And I'd make her laugh by pretending like these people are having a conversation. I'd say something crazy and she'd be laughing and we'd just be looking around and just people watching. And it's almost like the psalmist is just watching people and he's just commenting, man, happy are the people who are blameless and walk with the Lord. He's looking at all these people 
And he's realizing, wow, these folks are really happy right now. They, they really following the Lord and they obeying the Lord. And then he looks at himself and he says, man. He says, let me, let me, let me, let me, let me listen to that old prophet, Michael Jackson, and start with the man in the mirror. Or James, James, who says a man looks in the mirror and then walks away, not, re- not realizing, he forgets what he looks like. He, he turns the, the observation from happy of those people to himself, and he recognizes, man, if only my ways were committed to keeping your statutes, and I would not be ashamed. And this, ladies and gentlemen, is where we walk into the room. We have entered the room of this psalm right now. We've walked into this room. And there's something here that I want to say that's not really what the passage is saying, but I want to just use what's happening here as just to make an observation. This isn't what the passage means, but I'm just going to pull something out. One of the dangers of these two verses is when we are comparing ourselves to other people and we're evaluating their growth and their apparent godliness and we look at our own and we get discouraged by that. That's a dangerous reality when we compare ourselves to others because what happens is we can start to resent other people for their pursuit. And then we try to find things about them that aren't that great because they're actually seemingly doing better than us than reading the word. It's dangerous to compare ourselves to other Christians in and of itself. It can be useful to say, hey, man, I need to get on the ball right now. But it's dangerous when we compare ourselves to others. We can resent them or worse, we can live vicariously through other people's commitment to the word. Man, I just don't have it. They just know something I don't. But they be, they prayer warriors. They read the Bible, all that. And we can just live vicariously and actually settle for a, 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 a being, understanding that other people do this better than me and not take seriously that I need to do it myself. And that's not what the passage is saying, but I want us to observe a phenomenon that I think is common in our culture today. When he said this, though, he's genuinely discouraged. And worse, worse than that, he's worse than discouraged. Listen to what he says. If only my ways were committed to your statutes. He's disappointed. Saying, man, these people are happy. If only I was as committed as them. Man, is that not the plight of the Christian? Is that not the battle? It almost sounds like Romans 7 when it says, for I do not do the good I want to do, but I practice the evil I do not want to do. It almost sounds like that. He says, man, I'm, if only. And then he says in verse 6, that he's ashamed. He's ashamed. This is the moment where we've entered the room. We are sitting with the psalmist. And this is one of the challenges of COVID. One of the challenges of COVID that we have to fight through. COVID, one of the cha- remember what I said the psychological damage was going to be the real issue? You know, COVID has kept us from circumstances that remind us that we need God. Now, COVID itself does that, but if you're not, if no one that you know has it and you're not struggling with it, most people are working from home. You're pretty much around your family. 
there are circumstances that when we're just living life and we're out and about and doing stuff that just remind us that we need God. But when we're just at home, like right now, even right now, people are right now, like there are people right now not even watching the service right now. They're watching later on this afternoon. They're chilling right now. They might watch it at 2, 3 o'clock. But if we were coming to church, you would be sitting right here right now. But now it's just like I'm just, and I'm not saying that's wrong. I'm just saying it's real. It's just, it just happens. People just, COVID has allowed us to get comfortable in our own spaces and just do stuff. And so we don't even feel like we need God. When we're doing a series on love, you think, well, how do I apply this? Because I'm only around my family now and I'm good with them. And it's like, hey, okay, then, then you got, so then you think of social media. This is where I get the most challenge, the most pushback. COVID has made us think that, A, we're actually better than we really are. And we may not even need God's word. So it's harder to read God's word because I'm kind of in the same environment and I'm comfortable in this space. I like this space. But you don't read God's word when you have a problem. You read God's word to understand the person. And this is, the, this is what happens. It's kept us from circumstances. There's a lot of us that probably don't read that much. That you probably don't even feel like you need to read. And I know people say they're not readers. Listen, you got two options. You can get audible. There's a lot of audio. You can get apps that read the Bible to you. Or you stand before God and tell him you wasn't a reader. And hopefully he doesn't say well, then you wasn't a believer. Hopefully. This is exposing that we have to think differently about why we read the Bible. Why do we pick up a sword? You don't pick up a sword to play around with it because it's a dangerous weapon. You pick up a sword and you're impressed by it. Wow, look at this blade. I watch a lot of kung fu movies. I love them. And the, I'm talking about the ones with, I like the ones with the, the older school joints, with the, with the overdub. Where they be like, hmm. <laughs> so, you want to fight? I like them joints. Where they be like, <laughs> so, you want to fight? I like them. I want to see them. And in all their movies, they'll grab a sword and be like, this is a good sword. Where did you make this? They are pressed by the sword. A sword is impressive. <laughs> I'm sorry, they're in the room, they laugh, they're making me laugh. Don't make me laugh. They're making me laugh. But then there's a sword and you practice with the sword so it'll be useful. It'll help you defend yourself against the enemies. This is what Paul is saying in Ephesians 6. He wasn't saying it just to be illustrious of it. He was saying, in order to fight the devil, grab the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, and use that joint. And the proof of it is because that's what Jesus did. Jesus didn't do no supernatural miracles when the devil tempted him. He, he, he didn't transfigure and light up and push Satan back off the, oh, you can't. He didn't do that. Jesus just said, man, does not live on bread alone. He, he quotes Deuteronomy 8. He quotes the word that he told Moses to write. That's what he used. So he's talking about use the word. We, we need to see scripture as a sword and we need it, not because something's wrong. We don't need the Bible because something's wrong. We need it because it tells us about Jesus. And even if we've read it over and over, it's still how we get deeper. Listen, every time I look at a passage, I feel like the Lord has shown me something I ain't seen before. I can preach the same passage I preached five years ago and pull stuff out of it. Proof is I've done a couple messages in the love series. I said, let me remix this passage. 
I didn't even see the consider, justify, agree, and act when I taught this passage in James years ago, but it came alive now. The Bible, God is deep. Listen, God gave us one book. There have been millions of sermons, millions of books preached, and why do we still preach them? Why do we still read? Because it's that deep. It's that deep. It's that real. We we will never exhaust teaching. We'll never exhaust reading or writing. When we get to heaven, we're not going to get to a point where we're like, all right, well, cool, man, I'm good, man. I think I've learned everything I need to know about you, God. And So I'm all right. It's like, nah, we're going to constantly, constantly be forever in his presence, amazed. But we prepare to be amazed now by being amazed at the words that he gives us. You'd be discouraged. If you're discouraged this morning, then listen to what he says in verses 7 and 8. He says, I will praise you with an upright heart when I learn your righteous judgments. I will keep your statutes. Never abandon me. If you're discouraged this morning, like I've been, there are times I've been discouraged in my reading and stuff. Then commit to learning and praising. Commit to it like he does. And he says something crazy here, which is interesting. The end of it, he says, I will keep your statutes, never abandon me. And deep down inside, I wonder if many believers believe this, that God has plans or to abandon me because of my performance. I wonder how many of us really, really feel like that. Not all the time, but sometimes. Let me tell you, fear of abandonment doesn't make us love God. It makes us resent him. When you feel like God is just waiting to blast you or not answer your prayer or something because you ain't doing something and you just feel like that, then you obey him out of fear of the consequences of not doing it rather than I love him. There's a difference between, man, I'm doing this because I love God and I'm doing this because I'm afraid of God. There's a difference between... I want to worship Jesus, and I want fire insurance. There's a difference. Obedience, because you're afraid that God's going to abandon you, will see God as a boss and not as a father. You don't get fired from the faith. Now, you can walk away from it, but you don't get fired. We need to practice the sword so that we can attack, so that when, when, we, when, the, when the consideration of sin comes in, we can attack it at justifying it, making excuses on why we should do it. We need the sword to practice so that we can have confidence and praise. We need the sword to stay sober-minded. That's why we read. We don't read because everything's when everything's not okay. So remember the sentence I said at the beginning? I'm happy when there's obedience, but I get discouraged by my lack of pursuit, then my lack of pursuit may make you abandon me. That's how he ends this. This is, what he, this is the sentence of this passage. But he's not going to abandon us. So where are the will turners among us? Who are the will turners? 
Who's going to practice three hours a day, metaphorically speaking? Even though we could if we wanted to, metaphorically speaking. It wasn't about practicing three hours a day, but Will Turner was telling Captain Jack Sparrow. What he was telling him is that I'm serious with this. Or like Denzel on training day, I'm surgical with this. Don't make me laugh. He said, I'm serious. I practice with this thing. We need to practice with this thing. Don't forget your sword. You need it even when you're comfortable. You know why? Because at some point, God may let things be uncomfortable. You don't know what's coming. And you don't want to try to figure out how to use it, how to hold it when the enemy's coming. You want to be in position and you're ready. Let's get it. For his glory and for our good. Let's pray. Father, we all, to some degree, all of us, yours truly, we lack a degree of commitment to your word. Lord, we can allow other things to make us happy. We, we, we think about it that way. We can use your Bible or be angry at things that are not happening for us. We can be discouraged and, or find comfort that other people read it more than we do, as if we're, we're somehow exempt from that. We need the sword of the Spirit, the Word. Jesus, you are the Word of God. So we read your Word to find out about you. Many of us have read this Bible hand over fist, but Lord, you get, there's so much richness to your Word. I feel like every, every week, every, I just feel like you always are showing me new stuff that's faithful to the word. Lord, I pray that you would open our eyes and hearts for all of us. That if we're not readers, that we would be listeners. We would absent, that read the Bible to us. Lord, I help us to be men and women, brothers and sisters, sons and daughters, co-heirs who, who are happy because we're walking in your way for your glory and our good. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.